full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Jobs, bonds, inflation, contagion, Brexit, currencies, non-farm core M2 nominal deflators. These are a few of her favorite things. <laughs> Marilyn G. Wax, a senior business editor at NPR and good buddy, is our guest for the hour. Full disclosure, stay with us. Local broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by the support of Elwood Thompson's, Richmond's independently owned organic and local market, proudly feeding the community and supporting local farmers for more than a quarter century, located at the top of Richmond's carry town, Elwood Thompson's. Joining us from NPR's mothership in Washington, D.C. is Marilyn Gwax, senior business editor at NPR, good pal of mine, and here's a person who follows business and economics headlines religiously. She's mellifluous. Um, she's detail-oriented. <laughs> she's all over uh, the minutiae, and uh, we make interesting music when we do uh, public radio together. It's been a long time. Pal, how are you? Hi, I'm good, thank you. Um, can you make something interesting for us about all of this noise about uh, jobs and the Federal Reserve, and we're still stuck on near emergency level interest rates. I've been this low since the end of 2008. We started the year with Janet Yellen, the Federal Reserve Chair, saying we're going to go towards normalcy, i.e. we're going to increase at a measured pace, and yet we've hit a bump in the road. Mm -hmm. Well, let's just weave all of this data into a beautiful tapestry of information for uh, listeners. Here's what's going on. We, we got uh, news last week that the job market seemed to be slowing down, and everybody was like, what? Hey, wait a minute. We were expecting, you know, 160,000 jobs, and we got 38,000. So, I, you know, this is giving me a headache. So, uh, speaking of jobs, I have a job of trying to understand what's going on. So, I keep going back over things and trying to understand why were all the economists wrong? I don't want to say that you or I were wrong. You know, I'm going to blame the economists. But... What what were they missing? And, uh, you know, you look back on things and hmm, there were more clues than, than we were taking into account. Uh, one of the things that's been happening is temporary hiring is down. That That is, you know, when you bring on temps, it means your business is perking up and you need some extra help. You're not maybe quite ready to commit to hiring, but you need some extra hands on deck. That's been dropping. Uh, and also things like we're seeing indications that summer hiring of teens is down. Labor force participation is down. So let's pretend I'm Janet Yellen. I'm a lot taller than she is, but we're going to pretend. Uh, I'm looking at this and thinking, geez, you know, this is not a good time to raise interest rates because maybe the economy is actually heading for a real downturn here. And there are some other things that she has to take into account. Wait, 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 wait. Hold up. Time out, though. Time out. Time out. Time out. Time out. We know that the Fed has a dual mandate, right? Um, right. Full employment. Mm -hmm. and controlling inflation, which was the bugaboo of the late 70s and the early 80s. If mm -hmm. we unpack some of this for our listeners, if you go back fully nine years ago, uh, June 2007. Happy the anniversary. <laughs> the Fed's main interest rate was 5.25%. It's now closer to 0.25 to 0.5%. You're not getting anything on checking or savings accounts. Uh, we've had emergency low, emergency low interest rates now for nearly a decade. And you look around the economy and certainly it doesn't seem like an emergency. I mean, if you believe the headline number is unemployment is below 5%. Again, the property market is ridiculous, especially in big cities like New York, San Fran, Miami again, which was plumbing the depths of the subprime slowdown. So 
she can't just focus on inflation versus full employment. She can't just focus on jobs because there are other unintended consequences of yeah. keeping money this cheap for so long. And there are just all these uncertainties out there that she also has to take into account. If only that woman had a crystal ball. But here are things like June 23rd. There's this vote in England about, you know, the Brexit. Will Britain leave the European Union? Some people think that's going to be, if that were to pass, it would really disrupt markets. Like it would royal things in London and business would shift to Frankfurt or, or not or whatever. But it's a big uncertainty thing. You'd really like to get that one over. And another big giant uncertainty thing is uh, the political outcomes in the United States. It's a very bizarre political year. So you've got layers upon layers of political uncertainty, both in the United States and globally. So poor old Janet, she's sitting there trying to figure out Hmm. What what do I do with interest rates? What do I do with this economy when everything is so big and so uncertain? It's a very tough job. I hope okay, they pay okay, well. But I, I think they do. <laughs> I but, think they know. do pay well. And by the way, the speaking circuit after the Fed, even if she yeah, bombs out, there of it, it's go. amazing. See? Just look at Bernanke and Greenspan. You know, you are you are uh, wonderfully mellifluous, as I said before. You're also measured. You're also a Midwesterner, uh, which bothers me because <laughs> I can't seem to summon your indignation about certain things. Uh-huh. Right? If you go back and look at the Federal Reserve's minutes and their conversations throughout 2006 and 2007, they seem to be saying, and I could read it verbatim, and it would just give you a lump in your throat right now. Mm-hmm. We see, you know, property cooling off in a very orderly manner. They completely missed what was happening systemically. Yeah. And what we had in 2006 and 2007, people forget that uh, interest rate environment was also a function of the emergency interest rate reductions that we saw after the uh, early decade uh, Fed campaign of rate cuts and the period after 9-11. Um, And so the Fed, the Greenspan Fed, was accused of keeping rates too low for too long, and that swelled Mm -hmm. a huge credit bubble and a subprime bust, and that forced the Fed's hands again. So again, if I step back from the here and now, which is almost uh, nine years removed from the beginning of the subprime crisis, we don't see these indicators out there. Yes, we have high long-term unemployment, but the main jobless rate is under 5%. We have asset inflation in the stock market, in the bond markets. We have evidence of a bond bubble, people plowing money into junk bonds, into all sorts of derivative securities. We see um, ads for for five-second mortgage approvals during uh, baseball games again. And so I don't understand, and I don't envy her job. It's not as easy maybe as Paul Volcker's job was, where you just break the back of inflation. Um, There are a lot of externalities of emergency low rates right now. If she keeps them this low for that long because we have to worry about exogenous shocks or the Brits or what's going to happen to Venezuela or Brazil, we might well end up destroying the U.S. economy in two, three years. Right. Let's think about some crazy different ways of looking at things. Why is it so complicated right now? Like, you know, in in the recession of 1981. Basically, you could look at that and say, inflation, that is the problem. Got to do something about inflation. And once they addressed that problem, you're right. There were, you know, lots of- Wait, where were you in 1981? I was still trying to get into Studio 54. That was like on the tail end of Studio 54. (laughs) I think I was in there dancing at the time. Rubel didn't care for me. Oh, man. You wouldn't believe I was on top of a table. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Anyway, so that recession, they broke the back of inflation- Ta-da, you know, and also deregulation was kicking in more and more. The economy was coming to life. 
and, it, and things were, it was sort of a simpler world. You didn't really, like in 1981, China was not, you know, not a factor. Um, you really weren't dealing with as globalized a world as we have now. So it's a much larger, much more populated, much more complex world that you're dealing with. So you've got uh, all of the sort of demographic complications of understanding the workforce and understanding what's happening globally. Is it just that everybody's kind of getting old and a lot of baby boomers are retiring and therefore labor force participation is dropping down? Or is this some big change? We're really moving into this gig economy where people don't show up on payrolls, but they're actually working. I mean, you have an intersection of globalization, technology, booming population around the world, you know, 7 billion some people to deal with. So maybe no human being could take everything into account and figure it all out. So if you're trying to solve this puzzle of how do we get the economy growing, let's look at it one way. I'm going to just, let's just take a moment here to go through a couple of different scenarios. Maybe this is just a bunch of noise. Maybe actually the economy's kind of fine. It's perking along and anything that we're worrying about, we should just all shut up and after a while raise interest rates on a nice steady glide path. And we're just seeing some data noise right now and we're missing the big picture, which is that really things are pretty good. Okay, that's one, one way of looking at it. Another is this is all about cheaper energy. We had a big oil shock in a, in a reverse kind of way. You know, it was June... June, it's such a momentous month. Uh, it's the two-year anniversary of the collapse of oil prices. You mm. know, in June of two years ago, oil was selling for about $115 a barrel. And this year, you know, we were in the 30s. Down in the, you know, now it's closer to 50-ish or something in the 40s. But, you know, we're talking about oil being less than half what it used to be. So that's a big shock. And a lot of the jobs that have been lost, when you actually look at the data, it's mining and drillers and people who are related to the energy sector. That's all, all we have to do is adjust to this reverse energy shock and things will work out. Um, there's another way of looking at it. You know, you go back over data. I've been looking at like the labor market conditions index, which, you know, the Federal Reserve puts together. Sometimes, Your favorite, the reverse M2 nominal deflator on a <laughs> exactly. gold-weighted non-OPEC basis, right? I wake up sometimes right? in the middle of the night and just say, let me look at that chart again. When I look at it, it seems like, you know, sometimes it really does look like things are pointing down and you're headed towards a recession. But sometimes the market just needs a little breather. You know, we've had 75 consecutive months of private sector job growth. Hey, maybe it's just time for everybody to chill for a minute. Let's just, let's just you know, catch our breath. But maybe there's something else going on. Maybe, maybe there's something else. And let me let me say, I know you're 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 Midwestern and measured, and that's the last time I say that. I promise. But let me get you a little trippy, um, and metaphysical, because I know. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, Marilyn, all we are is dust in the wind. But um, when you put all of these inputs into your computer and your non-farm uh, reverse M2 aggregation deflator. Uh, when was the last time this economy, and I hear this a lot, when was the last time we were at quote-unquote normal? You heard the new normal ad nauseum um, uh, in, in the teeth of this great recession, but was there a period where this economy was going on its kind of organic, non-hydrogenated staying power, where um, 
employment was near full level, interest rates were near natural level, inflation was contained, you didn't see artificial um, juice from the Fed. And this is what I want to do. I want to kind of reverse engineer it. Because certainly if you look at history, and I wish somebody would do this, take a chart of the US economy in the last 50 years, and you'd be hard pressed to find a period where um, normalcy was purely defined, where it wasn't dictated by monetary or fiscal stimulus or something very unnatural or exogenous. You have picked the right guest for your uh, show today because I am that person who went back and looked at a lot of data. And actually, there I don't know that I'd want to call it normal, but a, but what you would call a golden period. The thing that almost everything gets measured against is when you go back and look at uh, the economy in the early 1960s, it was great. There was low inflation, rising productivity, wages were going up, jobs were booming. And uh, speaking of booming, I was a little baby boomer then. And um, where I'm from, Youngstown, Ohio, uh, right near there, GM had built a Lordstown plant, you know, where they were going to crank out cars. And the steel mills were going like crazy because they had to make steel for those cars. Because we're GM, living here in Allentown. I mean to tell you, and everybody wanted to buy a Ford Mustang, and there were cars cranking out. There was no global competition yet to speak of. Uh, Japanese cars were like a joke, and we weren't really, other than Volkswagen Beetles, who cared what mm-hmm. was coming out of Europe. So... You know, my uncles were getting jobs at Lordstown. Uh, people were, you know, there were there were just jobs everywhere. So now you go back, and I was just reading an article about uh, at Lordstown. There is a new project that's just uh, they're breaking ground on. It's like the, called the Lordstown Clean Energy Project. It's going to take uh, natural gas and and turn it into a power generation. It's a an $890 million, so nearly a billion-dollar plant that is being started. And when it's finished, that plant will employ 20 people. Mm. So, you know, we're getting giant... I, you know, when I first saw the headline that like a nearly a billion dollars being sunk into the local economy, I was like, oh, boy, that should... Geez, that'll be lots of jobs. But 20. there'll be a Starbucks and a Steak and Shake 20. across the street. That's right. Or Denny's. <laughs> We're talking not Starbucks. <laughs> but in so, modern you know, in modern history, Marilyn, I mean, you know, in anybody's pr- perspective, you can still, if you look at the early 60s, you can't fully back out the post-war experience and everything, right. you know, the post-war economy and coming off of the Great Depression and the military-industrial complex and demand. Yeah. I don't know if anything is, is purely natural. People talk about right. the gold standard... Uh, and the peg and the OPEC shock and and um, I I just don't know. And what I I do know is that never in U.S. history, never in the hundred year history of the Federal Reserve, have we had this long a period of this many trillions of ongoing stimulus. Right. Yeah. Goosing right. all sorts of asset classes, incenting all sorts of behavior. I mean, look, Marilyn, I was on my best behavior during subprime. I did not take out a liar loan. I didn't do any of this. Wamu country ride nonsense. I saved my money. Um, even now that I'm getting paid nothing in a savings account that I'm losing money in, in, in real terms, I should be able to go out and affordably buy a house. But I'm priced out of the market because there are speculators left and right. There are home right. builders. All there are people deals. who can do all cash deals. And there, if you go, if you know, we're, you go to Miami right now because of the interest rate environment and the lopsidedness of the continental economies you have. Venezuelans and Argentines and Brazilians buying up 
Miami condos. Uh, you name your price. Mm-hmm. I just want to buy it. Even if I lose money in real terms, it's better than inflation or expropriation or whatever my government's going to do to me at home. And a lot of this stuff ultimately reverbs back to the main U.S. interest rate, which is arguably the most important price in the world, even more important than the price of crude uh, mm-hmm. or price of a brick of, of gold. So again, Janet Yellen, I mean, gosh, if you could just focus on the dual mandate of the Federal Reserve, that'd be one thing. But there are so many inputs and the world's just pleading with her, please don't hike rates. You're going to throw all of these emerging economies who've already been walloped by the commodities bust into a deeper recession. Well, that's. I, I think one of the things, maybe what we're looking at here is macro versus micro. Let's just say on the macroeconomic level, that is like, let's really make sure that there's low interest rates and plenty of liquidity and globalized markets so that things can move around. And, uh, you know, we've done a lot of that. I mean, how, how, like, as you say, how can you get interest rates any lower? There's plenty of capital to go around. So if you want to build the Lordstown Clean Energy Center and it's going to cost a billion dollars, you can find capital for that. So capital, the, the macro big stuff is done. And remember, in 2009, Congress approved uh, like an $800 billion stimulus program. So that was almost a trillion dollars poured into the economy through that. So we've done things like big stimulus. We've done things like uh, quantitative easing. We've done low interest rates. Our work here is done. So what do we need to do on the micro level where there's just 20 people going to get a job? Yeah, that's my, my question is so, none of none of all of if you're talking about bang for your buck and let's say let's say the number is five trillion dollars of monetary plus fiscal stimulus in less less than a decade. Let's you know, we can go mm-hmm. back and parse that number out. It's something close to that. I would hope as the Fed that I'm getting more bang for my buck and return on on human capital, that companies would be incented to go out there and actually at some point you cry, uncle, you're like, I cannot not afford to keep my payrolls this thin. I'm leaving revenue right, on the table. Right. But instead, as you know, Marilyn, they've been buying back stock at record levels. They've been issuing extraordinary dividends. It's mostly the province of ledger domain and, and you know, um, keeping your balance sheet lean, as lean as possible. They've been refinancing debt. But if I'm again, this this is not this is not recoursed in the kind of the renaissance of hiring uh, that we thought we would get. Uh, it has disproportionately helped, and you're getting into the Piketty argument here. Um, asset class holders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, when you talk about that, you're sort of addressing income inequality there. Should there be this giant tax to take money away from the the richest people who have benefited from these macro policies and move it down to sort of a micro level. That is, help people go to college or, you know, redistribute the wealth in some way just to have more income support so that you can boost demand. Is there a way to, you know, do something big with taxes to help redistribute wealth? But, you know, maybe the real answer to a lot of things on a micro level is just it, it's just so tied to job training and a skills mismatch and U-Hauls. People need them to get to where the jobs are. You know, one of the things we're seeing in this job market, um, you know, while Janet Yellen can do handstands over there trying to get the economy moving, speaking of moving, one of the big problems is that this lack of labor mobility. And I don't mean up and down in terms of class. I mean, honey, get in the car. We're going where the jobs are. People don't want to move as much as they used to. Uh, The whole go west young man thing has kind of faded away. So, you know, recently, uh, President Obama was in Elkhart, Indiana, talking about how the economy there has come back. So I was talking to people there and, you know, trying to understand what was happening in Elkhart. And a lot of employers there 
are, uh, you know, they're, they're frustrated because they want to expand, but they can't find the right workforce. They don't have enough skilled workers to take the jobs. So the unemployment rate is around 4%. They're at full employment. They can't find enough skilled workers. Meanwhile, let's jump over to West Virginia, where coal uh, layoffs are horrendous. Thousands, tens of thousands of people have lost jobs. Why don't they get in the car and drive to Elkhart and get a job? Well, Maybe their house is underwater. Uh, Maybe they have more parental uh, care issues than previous generations have because people live longer. So you're sitting there in West Virginia. You've lost your job, but your mom's next door and she needs your help. Uh, Your kids are living in the basement. It's not easy to just say, I have no skills, but I'll just drive to Elkhart. We have lost some of that uh, mobility because we have an aging population. We have various constraints on on our uh, home ownership in terms of being able to dump your house and just move away. So maybe it's a really macro issue, or, or rather micro, where we really need to help individuals get the skills and the moving costs that they need to go to where the jobs are. Maybe mm. that's a big problem, is there's just not the right workforce in the right place. If we could match up things a little bit better, maybe we would have better hiring. Full disclosure, we're talking to Marilyn G. Wax. She's NPR senior business editor, joining us from the NPR mothership in Washington, D.C. You know, Marilyn, it was a few days after Barack Obama took office at the beginning of 2009, and and Wall Street was still melting down. We were only maybe four or five months removed from from ground zero of that enormous conflagration, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, Mm -hmm. the bailouts, TARP, AIG. And Rahm Emanuel, uh, the president's chief of staff, Uh, came out and said, you never let a serious crisis go to waste. And what I mean by that is it's an opportunity to do things you think you could not do before. As uh, Obama is kind of looking at the last few months of his presidency here, what did they kind of miss out on here? In that we have, you know, if, if I were to tell you President Obama, you'd have unemployment below 5%. You have the Dow Jones Industrial Average above 18,000 again. You have uh, GM resurgent selling SUVs like it hasn't sold in a decade. Uh, You've property market back. Um, The banks have been recapitalized. You'd think he'd be very happy, and yet the the jobs report that we got last week was, on the surface of it, maybe the worst we've had in in six or seven years. Something is, is definitely missing, and I wonder if these guys look back and say, we could have targeted this extraordinary stimulus, this extraordinary once in a lifetime opportunity in a different way. What the, what should they have done? Well, we'll have this thought experiment here where we envision taking all the members of Congress and all the members of the White House, put everybody into uh, separate rooms, give them all truth serum and have them tell you what they really think. And probably what they would say is we blew it with infrastructure. There's a big problem with uh, decaying, collapsing infrastructure. I happen to be a user of uh, the Washington metro system, the trains that now with some regularity fill with smoke and mm-hmm. there's track work that's not being done. It's it's a real disruption to... Uh, to the know, economy the and everybody's here. way I mean, of life, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's going to discourage tourism. I mean, we've got... Just you know, it's a, it's really a pain. Time is money, and I'm I'm losing time sitting on trains that you know that aren't moving. If we had addressed more of our transportation problems, maybe we would be seeing better productivity numbers. If we had dedicated more 
effort to infrastructure, maybe those people I was referring to, those coal miners in West Virginia, wouldn't have to leave their but that's families all you because were hearing. they've been doing... Maryland, they were talking shovel-ready. They yeah, were talking yeah. about high-speed rail, Metro Liner Joe Biden. He wanted and, to be Acela Joe Biden. Right, and, and it didn't happen, really. But I don't under... I, I, you know, there was something... I guess the Great Depression was a heck of a lot worse and that people were okay with a CCC or a TVA or, or going out there and actually paying people. We had cash for clunkers, everything but cash for jobs. I mean, look, I'm not a socialist. I'm not arguing this kind of uh, really revolutionary economic argument. But again, $5 trillion, something on the order of $5 trillion between monetary policy and fiscal policy was spent on this economic disaster. And we've seen disproportionately that money go to people who are already holders of capital and and, um, wealth assets. And I'm amazed that that didn't get more bang for the payroll buck. And I wonder if in this, you know, in light of, of, of what you illustrated for us with that factory and the new factory being built in 20 jobs, if, if this economy just lost its ability to kind of feel the oats of, of fiscal stimulus, of true stimulus, there's such a disconnect between the worker and the money that's coming in from a central source that it, it no longer applies like it did 50 years ago. We have seen a lot of rich people get richer. That's actually statistically true. There's been a lot of capital moving around and a lot of people, capitalists got richer. But the job creation has been so weak. And that's the thing, I think, if you went back to 2009, it's that infrastructure thing that no matter how many jobs you could send overseas for manufacturing or jobs that you can eliminate with automation, when it comes to infrastructure, you still need actual people, warm bodies. Somebody has to get out there and help pave those roads. Somebody needs to build the ports. Somebody has to work at the airport to make those TSA lines go a little faster. So you really do need human beings for things that boost our productivity through better infrastructure. And there are ways to pay for that that aren't necessarily just tax dollars. There could have been uh, you know, some kind of infrastructure banks, public-private partnerships that could have been created. And that would have you know, created a lot of these kinds of jobs that you're just not getting from the private sector. Um, so that's, that's a terrible problem is just trying to get jobs to where people are so that if you're a coal miner in West Virginia who j- lost your job, you can still go out and build a bridge in your area. Marilyn, you know, I think it is interesting when um, uh, Bill Clinton and some of the members of his cabinet think back to his first 100 days in office and they inherited this really weak economy from Bush 41 and this terrible recession, which was awful, you know, the early 90s by, by those historical standards. But no one saw the Internet that was going to come out of left field and create such a productivity boom, completely change our lives, create massive uh, asset booms. Um, the, the late 90s economic renaissance in this country and the economic boom that the Clinton administration rode, you know, eight years into office was much, you know, more or less like predicated on the tech boom. We might, there's evidence out there and you've been seeing stories written by um, technologists and futurists and experts and the like that we might see something like that happen in the energy space in the United States, where you talked about it earlier, this collapse in oil prices historically would have snuffed out anything in alternative energy. But now we see staying power, uh, solar 
is uh, profitable in many regions compared to uh, traditional gas-fired or coal-powered plants. You see the technological progress of companies like Tesla uh, and electric cars, which has become less of an electric car and more of an aspirational luxury car, and others want to follow suit. There is a real possibility now that we could break the back of another inflationary indicator, traditionally the price of oil. Right. And there are all kinds of aspects of energy that could create lots of jobs. For example, I hate those telephone poles outside of my house. They're so ugly, all these wires. Come on, people, let's put them underground. Let's stop with the ugly energy system we have where electricity has to come to your house on these like poles that are from the 1890s or whatever. It, it's time to get that stuff uh, dug up and underground and safer and less hideous. And, you know, so everything from the wire that comes into my house to the generation of power for my car to everything. It all needs to be updated. I mean, when you really look at our energy infrastructure, like I, I'm like, what year is this? Is it 1898? I mean, you have like coal-fired plants and you have, you know, ugly wires strung all over the place. Every bit of it is out of date. Every bit of it needs to be updated and modernized and turned into something cleaner, more efficient, more um, uh, conservation-oriented so that we can do more with less power. Everything, people's houses, I mean, from insulation, once the wire gets inside your house, you need a, a better everything to make your house operate in a way that is more energy efficient. But isn't it so, compelling to you that something else is afoot if you see this this full-throated collapse in oil prices from north of $140 in 2008 to, you know, we briefly were in the 30s back in February. Nobody thought that it would ever fall below 60 or $50 again. Not only are a lot of the, the U.S. players in the, in the oil patch and the shale patch still producing, but you have uh, much to the consternation of utilities, intrepid people out there putting up solar panels on their roofs, trying to mm -hmm. feed f power back into the grid in spite of something that in the past would have killed any kind of nascent alternative energy boom, which which says to me that something else is happening, that um, maybe Moore's law or the, the supply demand curve is completely shifted, maybe with China's demand, uh, maybe with the way uh, you're seeing solar panels placed in sub-Saharan Africa, with the expansion of cheap mobile technology, that something else could be fomenting that is akin to the internet miracle of the early 90s, where, as I said, we were talking about very basic things, or how are we going to get people out of the recession, the Gulf War overpass, the savings and loan hangover, and bam, out of left field, Netscape comes in. Mm -hmm. And that just caused such a, that was summer of 95. You think of how much has changed in the last 21 years uh, as, as the world has uh, absorbed all the changes brought by the internet. But, you know, it, you've, as you say, we've got all these energy changes coming, but also changes to the very way we uh, can conduct ourselves. I mean, I'm personally very excited about the idea of a driverless car, you know, because I really would much rather spend that time reading than, you know, worrying about it if the person behind me is going to bump into my car or whatever. We have behavioral changes that are going to come, lifestyle changes that are going to come, all sorts of new technologies that are going to change our lives. Blockchain technology, that's the stuff underlying Bitcoin, uh, you know, that could have a huge impact. Drones could have a huge impact. Jetpacks, I mean, everything could change in the next 50 years. We may have a world that is 
largely unrecognizable to us now. I mean, in 94, did you think that everything in your life was going to be different uh, because of the Internet? Well, everybody How- is carrying a powerful camcorder in their hands now, yeah. a powerful camera, yeah. um, you know, a powerful voice recorder, a calendar, well, an email on- system, a fax machine. It's unbelievable. In our industry, if you think about journalism, I mean, I, I sometimes I think like, you know, if somebody told me that they were going to take the Internet away from me and I wouldn't have my smartphone and I wouldn't have email and I wouldn't be able to text and I wouldn't be able, I would just like quit. I think I would just become a pop-in maid because it would just be too frustrating to be a journalist again without all of the tools that we've been given in the last 20 years. Um, it, it just, I, I think back and I'm like, God, what did we do before 94? Did I have like a chisel and a hammer or was I was I actually using a quill and parchment? Because I can't even envision anymore how I would do my job today without all of the things that, that we have. <laughs> well, you would, do, you would do your job with a lot more job security for one. I well, mean. there you go. But I, I, I think maybe we had carrier <laughs> pigeons, as I recall. I'm, I'm like, how on earth did I'm I I'm kind of nostalgic done? for the time I, I had dreams about becoming a high-paid, you know, nationally syndicated newspaper columnist. But right. That was, yeah, that was my trap. Now yeah. we're all opening food trucks. But I digress, Marilyn, because That's I... That's right. I, I would I mean, like... I'm just saying, you know, in, in a 20-year period, my job has changed so much that it's unrecognizable to me what I used to do. I mean, I'm sure I did it. I have pictures. I think I was an actual journalist more than 20 years ago. But, you know, it's everything has changed. And when I think of the pace of change that is coming in the next 20 years, you know, I'm sure that there will be people 20 years from now who say, Wow, and you used to actually get on the Pennsylvania Turnpike and drive back to Ohio with mixing it up with all those trucks and you had to pay attention for six hours? I mean, you know, it's going to seem that prehistoric to people 20, 30 years from now that they'll be incredulous. It's like saying to a kid now that, no, you had to put the information on a piece of paper and then put it in an envelope and lick the back of the envelope and put it in a mailbox to get something, you know, to your friend. It's going to change everything and the way those cars will be powered, the way we will transport ourselves. So maybe there are zillions of jobs that are about to be created, and maybe the new Congress will say, hey, let's build the infrastructure for this new 21st century economy. Let's take down the old telephone poles. Let's clean up our roads. Let's have those high-speed trains. Maybe we'll surge into the future, but maybe we'll totally drop the ball and we won't get any of that done and jobs will just disappear. So I don't know. It's either going to be it's either going to be very good or very bad and I'm not sure really which way things are pointing. It seems like with proper uh, thoughtfulness on the part of our leaders for innovation for political change Maybe a lot can happen that will create jobs for this new kind of economy, but maybe we miss the boat. I don't know. Marilyn Gwax is a senior business editor at National Public Radio, and I just had a flash of brilliance, Marilyn. While you were saying that, in this moment of whimsy, my brain was marinating in kind of fusiony business ideas. How about I pull the car seats out of my Camry? Okay. And I bring it up to D.C., uh-huh. and you and I put on two quality USB headsets in the front seat and, uh-huh. and slap an Uber sign on the door, and we have an Uber live show. Right. And we get it sponsored like crazy and just interview anybody who comes in about their life stories. And uh, it's a podcast. Okay, okay we dear. We get Wi-Fi. <laughs> NPR would back it. 
right? Uber would back it. The, the, the car company, maybe Toyota would back it. I'm brilliant. Why don't you say yes? Why don't you use your illusion? Because look, we had an Uber driver in here a couple of weeks ago. He's like, I'm not doing this for the money. I'm doing this for the job leads. Um, I'm a VC. Oh, I'm uh-huh. looking to invest in companies. There was a real uh-huh. estate agent who picked me up several weeks ago on route to the airport. He's like, I'm just looking for real estate leads. I don't, I don't want to you know, drive this thing. But think about it, Marilyn. We'll make money on the Uber rides. We'll get the ad revenue. We'll get the exposure from NPR. We'll get distribution, um, air conditioning. Um, come on, we got we to gotta be resourceful now. Because to your point, we've completely changed the conversation right now, where it was stationary in the past. You grow up, you work at a station, you, you get promoted, you work at a newspaper as a reporter, researcher. There's no end of the line right now. There's no kind of trophy or pot at the end of the rainbow that they're dangling in front of you. That's right. And, and there's no telling what... What will journalism be 20, 30 years from now? I mean, wow. I I work with a lot of interns and and talk to students, and I don't know what to tell them. I just tell them uh, somehow or other facts, truth, uh, curiosity. Those things are pretty enduring, but uh, how people will work, how we'll drive, how we'll get to our workplaces, all of it is just completely uh, in flux right now. And whether that future is job rich or job poor is, you know, really uh, an interesting question. But it seems that to me, for the foreseeable future, where the jobs will be for people who are not, you know, brain surgeons, who are who are not, uh, you know, big shots on Wall Street or whatever, that where most of the jobs are going to have to be is where we're going to need human beings to still do them. And that is, it's just really hard to completely automate the building of a new bridge. I just don't see how you get a robot to completely build a bridge. You're pretty much, for now, you're still going to need human beings. And we need to replace all our bridges. They're all pretty bad. And we are going to need more roads, and we're going to need more airports. So we do need workers. We just need to have a political solution that allows for the flourishing of infrastructure in a way that does not suddenly send the you know, U.S. debt to, you know, $40 trillion. Sure. We've got to find a way to make those things work. When the world is awash in capital, look at all the stupid things people invest in. I mean, really dumb things that don't pan out. How about if we just have good, steady, serious infrastructure building that results in cleaner water, better roads, better uh, transportation experiences, whatever that might be, you know, I, 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 it seems like maybe some. It of seems this like is... a derivative on the tragedy of the commons, though, because you know, as I, as, as you were saying this, I was thinking about it. This might be a tortured transition, but you look at a company like Amazon.com, which is intensely private. I mean, it's a public company, but it's been funded in the capital markets. Um, mm-hmm. The secretive founder Jeff Bezos. I looked at the market capitalization. It hit an all-time high yesterday. It's now worth yeah, right? close to three hundred and fifty billion dollars. You compare that. that Could have bought that in ninety-five. Compare that that to the largest retailer in the world, Walmart, which is worth $223 billion. And now you're seeing evidence across the board in retail. I mean, Walmart was closing stores earlier this year that here you have a company which is innovative, which is technologically and kind of um, strategically promiscuous. It tries various things. It invests in several things that flunk because it can afford to, because Wall Street gives it such a premium multiple. And it's not judging it on same store sales every quarter like a retailer is or, or foot traffic or anything. There's a person who almost has a reality distortion field. 
And they're going around the country and building these enormous warehouses, but there's no evidence that there are quality jobs emanating from this. That this is a, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's it's almost like a person light uh, company. It it relies on mm-hmm. UPS. It relies on the postal system, Amazon Prime. There's a lot of uh, intellectual property that goes over its enormous technological investments like the cloud, like um, Amazon TV or Amazon Video, Amazon Audio. That is being held up as kind of the company of the future. It does a little bit of everything, but it's not exactly this bastion of high-paying jobs. Well, again, it's going to prove my central point, which is that, uh, you know, if Amazon had a choice, it would have no warehouse workers. I mean, they're clearly moving towards driverless fork, forklifts, you know, and, and every, yeah, yeah, sure. every possible way to, uh, to eliminate a workforce so that things are more efficient, more reliable. You know, and, and there's talk in factories, they talk about uh, lights out manufacturing, lights out distribution centers. That is that you don't even have any employees. You don't have to worry about turning the lights on or the air conditioning or the heating because it's all just these uh, but Marilyn, do you robotics. buy do you buy the argument? And Walmart used to sell that in the past that they are, for example, China's sixth biggest trading partner. And what they've done is allow the average American, uh, middle class to lower middle class, to enjoy the fruits of globalization, right. i.e., a twenty dollars DVD player or uh, exactly a, you know two dollar broom. Here's the thing: is if if Amazon can make things super efficient and eliminate all those jobs, it still is going to need ways to get that stuff to you. And even if that's done by drones or whatever, but it's not all going to be drones. At some point, they kind of need roads, bridges. They need uh, just to to have the goods to put into a a distribution center. They're going to need ports so that parts can come from other countries so that products can be made to be put on those shelves by robots. So you may be able to drive down the cost of consumer goods by the kind of automation that Amazon is doing, but you still need the human beings to build the infrastructure to make all of that work. So again, you're back to the idea that we can have super productivity and efficiency in some ways in the private sector, but you need to have some kind of a system in place to build the infrastructure to accommodate that growth. And are we going to have the political will, the innovation, the ideas to make it possible for us to rebuild our infrastructure, tunnels, everything? I mean, God, what don't we need? Everything needs to be updated. I mean, there are times when you just look around the country and you're like, man, all of this stuff is falling apart. I I remember being a, a child in Youngstown and looking at the steel mills and saying to my father, but daddy, aren't these things falling apart? Like, don't they look really, really terrible? They had been built in the 1890s and the 1820s. By the, you know, by the 1970s, they were clearly falling apart. And you know what? They were. They were dying because no one was reinvesting in them. They were old uh, mills that were allowed to just deteriorate. And after a while, it all just fell into kind of a pile of rust until uh, Chinese scrap dealers came and hauled it all back to China to melt down the old steel mill buildings. And that's, you know, I look around at the infrastructure and I'm kind of like in my head thinking, Daddy, isn't all of this falling apart? We need to update this stuff that was built during the Depression. I mean, there, there are things around. I, there are high schools out there that were built by the WPA, you know, in the 1930s. Uh, you know, it's ridiculous. We've got to update our infrastructure, and that's where the jobs will be created, and that's where the productivity gains will come. So, you know, if you're counting on Amazon to be a giant employer, it's probably not going to happen if you're counting on building the roads, bridges, ports, 
airports that are needed to make Amazon efficient, that's where we have to be turning our attention. And yet, you know, here's this political season that's in progress. And you hear a lot of unusual topics brought up from the size of people's hands to, you know, emails, all kinds of stuff. But how much are we really talking about the need to upgrade our productive assets like infrastructure. It seems amazing to me that it is so such a small part of the political discussion. Well, maybe there's a learned helplessness to it. But certainly, you did talk about the political season here, and we might be seeing the final... The final inning for the Bernie Sanders campaign, as it were, as there are reports, the AP is reporting that Hillary Clinton has essentially cinched the Democrats' nomination, even though Bernie Sanders might contest it into the convention. And uh, Donald Trump is the presumptive Republican nominee. And critics have said on on both sides, this this illustrates the um, the residual unhappiness of, of a huge swath of the American population that both stumped for the left and the far right candidate, there was a there was a huge populism to it. They're like, what about us? We're still ticked. Um, we didn't get bailed out like the banks did. Uh, the establishment candidates, I mean, Hillary got a lot of grief for, for giving these $250,000 speeches to Goldman Sachs. It seems like uh, for all of the strength of this economy and for full employment and the Dow at 18,000 and the property market back and the Fed trying to normalize rates, uh, a good plurality, if not majority, of the country is not happy. There really is a lot of um, a lot of work being done around what's happening with the middle class, and I've seen a lot of studies that are really quite interesting. And it's just pretty much crystal clear these days, statistically, you know, irrefutable, that the middle class is uh, is getting squeezed. That is, <laughs> it's interesting because the top third, the the people who make the the most in the top third, if you lined up you know, 100 people, 33 of them would be making, uh, you know, an upper income, the bottom third and the middle third. And what we've seen since this recession has hit is the wealthier households have gotten wealthier. We're seeing a shrinking middle class, not just because people are falling into poverty. Actually, what you're seeing is people moving up into the upper classes or upper incomes, uh, whatever you want to call it. And some people are moving down. But that that middle third really is shrinking, and it's happening coast to coast. The Pew Research uh, did a thing looking at different cities and how many of them are seeing their middle income households uh, shrinking. And it, it's really across the board. It's just coast to coast. Every state, every city practically, I mean, there are almost no exceptions. Ogden, Utah was like one exception. But other than that, the middle class is um, is getting squeezed out because – People are either going to college, getting more educated, and moving up, or they're not—they're losing their factory jobs, their mining jobs, their energy-related jobs, and they're dropping down. So it is just statistically true that on a broad spectrum, there is a smaller and smaller middle class. We're now a country of people who are mostly either upper class or lower class, and uh, and I hate to use that word class. That's an inc- incorrect word, but upper income and lower income. And that middle is truly being squeezed. And I think that's what you're really seeing. This has been happening for years and years. It is not an Obama phenomenon. It's actually been happening since 1979. Um, it's a continuous pattern. No matter who's in office, we've seen this uh, shrinking middle. 
So, you know, it finally, after 30-some years of this, of 30, 40 years of a trend, this year it just seemed to really catch fire in, in, uh, in the aftermath of the recession. We've really seen this outcry from people in the middle saying, wait a minute, what about our jobs? Hmm. Marilyn, in the few minutes we have left, I would love for you to dispense with all Midwestern moderation and go freestyle on me. What are you What are you covering out there? What are some of the idiosyncratic things that you think are being undercovered? Uh, what's your next um, segment on? What should we be watching uh, during the dog days of summer? This is a hard thing for our brains to wrap around, but this this uh, business with uh, the Brexit, I, I actually think this the is Brit, an the Brits leaving the euro. Yes, if uh, Britain pulls out of the euro, it could really cause a lot of. Um, economic disruption. Just It's just kind of one of those weird things that here we are in the United States and it's like, well, what is it to us? But it could really cause this unraveling of the European Union because if they leave, well, then what if this country, well, you know, well then maybe Spain will pull out or maybe, you know, whatever. Countries will start to uh, say, hey, you know what, if they can leave, so can we. And that could be really disruptive to the whole world. It, it's just a, a weird thing, but it's... it's uh, Something that might have a lot of ripples if it breaks uh, in the direction of, of breaking up the European Union. It causes instability. And the other thing that seems like kind of crazy also happening this month, as I said, the uh, Panama Canal widening is happening. And that could bring a lot more global trade. Things will be uh, bigger ships will be able to go over to the East Coast that could revive, you know, let's say a Baltimore or Charleston, all these places that have that face the Atlantic Ocean, uh, and maybe this will bring a lot more business to the country. So there are things that happen that you're just not even paying attention to because they seem so far away, but they may end up, this month could end up, when we look back on it, uh, as, as a time when some pretty important things happened overseas that had an impact on us. And what about the markets? Um They've, you know, the, the markets are flattish year to date, uh, but still have not experienced a true uh, bear, I think, right now for the better part of five yeah. years. And people have been lulled into this sense that that maybe interest rates are just not going to go up. Maybe the bond market is just going to continue to be sanguine. Maybe this is just a, another great moderation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a possibility. I mean, maybe... <laughs> You know, who knows? There's there's a theory that, uh, well, there's always cycles. Things are going to go up. They're going to go down. We're due for a down. We need a, a bear market is 20% off, the, you know, and are we going to see that kind of a plunge that, that you, and a sustained long drop in, in uh, stock prices until we start to rebuild again? Well, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe maybe there's just sort of, uh, maybe the because of, the, the more modern ways of trading all the electronic stuff, maybe we've, we've kind of uh, shaved off the rush, roughest edges. So we'll just have this kind of bouncing around a little, you know, somewhat up, somewhat down, somewhat up, somewhat down, but not those big uh, bull and bear cycles like we used to see when there was a, more of a human emotional impact in there. But every time you say, oh, there won't be a bear market, that probably just guaranteed that there will be one. So I don't, I don't want to be uh, too confident about any of that. And finally, what's really striking is with Hillary Clinton um, now presumptively the Democrats' nominee. It's just a very, very tall order for Bernie Sanders to to maybe pull this off and hope that superdelegates um, stump in his favor. You have probabilistically you know, the market saying there's an extremely good chance that by February these four women will effectively rule the world. Hillary Clinton, Angela Merkel, Christine Lagarde, and Janet Yellen. 
That is unprecedented. I mean, if we were just to take the fact that, a, that, that the first woman is getting a major party's nomination this time around, that's story unto itself. But it could be a real signature year for the kind of the global empowerment of women next year. Yeah, I think that could be a huge change in just the way people think about the world. I mean, if you have all of these women sort of running the biggest economies and making the most important decisions, it does sort of set an example. And I happen to be one of the few rare human beings who was in Beijing in 1995 when the UN had that uh, big women's conference and Hillary Clinton went there. And there were all these women uh, from all over the world who came to Beijing and to Wairo, a small city outside of Beijing, to talk about women's issues. And it was like a really revolutionary thing. Here are all these women, thousands of women from all over the world. And uh, I was actually in the room when Hillary Clinton gave her famous speech there. And I saw women from all over who couldn't speak a word of English, but they could say Hillary. She was like a rock star. People were breaking down the barriers to see this woman. And she was, you know, a first lady then. She wasn't the president. But her presence there, speaking truth to power in China, was an inspiration to an awful lot of women. So, you know, when you look around the world and in the future, if you had a Hillary Clinton, an Angela Merkel, a Christine Lagarde, a Janet Yellen, wow, that may really have an impact on how girls and young women think about what their role in the world might be. Now, you know, maybe that won't happen. Uh, We don't know what the future is, but I'm just saying that sort of scenario uh, could really unleash a lot of uh, talent in the world if a lot more young women say, you know what, maybe this is the century for women to move ahead. And that would bring a whole lot of new brains into the global economy. NPR senior business editor Marilyn G. Wax adjusted for inflation and priced in terms of nominal copper during the gold standard. I understand your stock is at an all-time high, madam. Yes, yes it is. It's surging even as we speak. Thank you so much for joining us. You're really a champ to do it. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to Melissa Marquis at NPR Washington, D.C. We are on NPR One, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, iTunes. Gosh, where else? I hope Spotify picks us up. You can listen to us on WRIR Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.